Welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast, brought to you by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. We want to know what it really means to be a black sheep and work out how we can all get a bit better at going against the grain. We're going to be asking some of our favourite black sheep about the rules they've broken to get them where they are today. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our black sheep this week is Dr. Tara Swart. Tara is a neuroscientist, a leadership coach, a psychiatrist and an award-winning author. Tara believes that we all have the power to lead the lives we want. She has worked with some of the world's most well-known companies, including Facebook, LinkedIn and Google, and has helped them unleash their potential. Tara's book, The Source, was quite revelatory for me. With a scientific focus, Tara has deeply explored how the ancient tools of manifestation and visualisation can in fact be scientifically proven to be powerful tools for self-change. Tara has researched the latest breakthroughs in neuroscience and behavioural psychology to prove that spiritual practices, which are so often belittled by cynics, can free us of our self-limiting behaviours and propel us towards our truest, most authentic selves. Wow. (laughs) Hi, Tara. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Daniela. Thank you for having me. Um, As you know, the title of this podcast is Black Sheep, so it would be very strange if I didn't start off by asking you whether you think of yourself as a black sheep. Well, I was quite pleased to be picked as a black sheep, actually, because I think that at every stage of my life, I never thought at the time that I was a black sheep. But when I look back at what I've done and, you know, the way that it's all come together, I definitely would would say that I am. And with your book, The Source, uh, I would have assumed that that book was deemed as quite black sheep-like within the scientific field or within, you know, alongside your peers that are clearly kind of scientifically minded. Was that how it was received? I think I've been very lucky that actually it's been received really well, but there is a little bit of, but you're a doctor and a scientist and a lecturer at MIT. How can you believe in vision boards and Mm. manifestation? Mm. Um, So... I knew that it was taking a risk when I decided to write it. As I wrote it and it really brought together the science and the spirituality for me, Mm. I knew that that was also still perhaps a bigger risk the more I sort of got into it. Um, And then since it's come out, it's actually just like become bigger than I ever could have thought that it was going to in such a good way that it's obviously a risk that I'm really glad I took. Yeah. And has it made you act in a kind of more black sheep-like way within your kind of daily life or not really? I think, you know, the whole thing about you saying, do you think you're a black sheep and how I guess I almost like didn't want to be one growing up, but I was. So now, yeah, it makes me just feel much more okay with being me and all the conflicts and dilemmas and dichotomies Mm. that come with that. Mm. Tara, will you kick us off with the first rule that you have broken, please? The first rule that I've broken is um, around the belief that growth stops at adulthood. So it's interesting being a neuroscientist because I think amongst all sorts of different professions, including in science, it's the one where a lot of times we've had to say, you know that thing we told you 10 years ago mm. about how your brain works? Actually, that's we know that that's not true now. So there's been a lot of saying that what we thought was the way that things worked. We've understood, you know, that's evolved. We've had sophisticated scanning techniques that it's different to what we thought. So a really big one 
that people still believe, and I've you know fought personally and professionally to try to overturn, is that we all know that your brain grows massively during childhood and adolescence. But we thought for a long time that by the time you were about 18, your brain became set and your personality was fixed for life. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, whatever potential you had in different areas was was fixed Mm -hmm. so that you couldn't suddenly go from being a creative person to becoming an accountant or vice versa. We now know that neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to change itself, happens very actively until we're about 25. And then from 25 to 65, there are things that you can do to keep your brain what we call plastic, which essentially means flexible. Um, So doing different things, learning new things, they're the best ways to keep your brain plastic and flexible. But my rule is that I want to be the person that changes my brain. I don't want to just drift through life, exposing my brain to different people, different experiences, different environments, and let that shape my brain. Mm. And when you were at medical school, or was it when you were at medical school, where you were taught that actually your growth does stop after childhood? That's, um, yeah, so I was going to say I was at medical school so long ago that <laughs> yes, we still believed that, uh, you know, neuroplasticity wasn't wasn't really a thing then. But it's probably been more known about for about 20 years. Mm. Um, and yeah, so since we've known about it, then a lot more has come to light. And so how did you learn about it personally? Um, well, so when I I started at medical school, then I went and did my PhD in neuroscience and then I came back and finished medical school. So when I became a junior doctor, um, I remember the consultant saying to me, we have our first CT scanner at the hospital in Oxford and it's like an x-ray machine without x-rays. Mm. And I remember thinking, that sounds really weird and I don't think I'm ever going to use that. Um, of course, you know, CT isn't even the most sophisticated mm. thing we've got anymore. So then... You know, CT, MRI, functional MRI, now diffusion tensor imaging. So all of that has moved us from relying on the sort of very primitive experiments, not experiments, but surgeries that we did on people with mental illnesses or brain tumours, which led us to believe that the brain worked in a certain way, to actually being able to see what happens in a healthy brain and see, you know, growth from childhood to adulthood and, you know, through to old age. We just, un, you know, we just have seen and understood differently. So, how did that make you feel as a at this time? Were you were a psychiatrist, or I mean, you had so many things. Were you kind of practicing as a psychiatrist, or were you working within neuroscience at this time when when it shifted? So, at the time we got the CT scanners, I was just uh, I was doing medicine and surgery. You have to do that in the first year when yeah. you qualify. Then I became a psychiatrist, and I always believed that mental illness was a brain disease it was a physical thing like having a heart attack because that's what you were taught well actually there's been a lot of conflict about that because you know there were asylums Mm -hmm. there was the whole argument about whether psychiatric wards should be in a general hospital or not so that's gone back and forth Mm -hmm. um it was actually quite contra the the current belief to think of mental illness as a physical chemical disorder yeah so i was always of that mindset from the beginning it was really after I stopped being a psychiatrist and changed career and looked more into neuroscience research for peak performance, Mm -hmm. you know, for people who didn't have um, a disease but just wanted to get more out of their brain. That's when I really understood that neuroplasticity is the single most exciting, you know, area to be in. Um, And obviously I started experimenting on myself. So I do something every year to try to 
improve my neuroplasticity. So when you look back as your time practicing as a psychiatrist, how does it make you feel in terms of those kind of more binary way of looking at the development of the brain? I don't know if you think back to your patients that you saw, would you act differently now? Um, it, yeah, it makes me kind of sad, really. Um, so I think, you know, a much more holistic mm. approach to mental health is is what's happening more now. Um, and, you know, that's whether you have a, a mental illness or not, just understanding that things like what you eat and how much you move around and what sort of, you know, supportive relationships you have around you, um, how important those things are to, to improving mental health, not just diagnosing and giving medication and mm. keeping people on wards and so in um, my mind that is how the NHS are dealing with mental health now the latter but am I being too negative it's definitely improved over time but remember I was I was a psychiatrist tw- nearly 20 years ago so it's it's definitely improved over time but obviously resources are squeezed and then you know ideally everybody would get medication and psychological therapy if, mm. if they needed both but that's not possible most of the time yeah. um let alone the advice on what you should eat and yeah um so yeah it's it's a resource issue um but that's why i feel like that's why i wrote the book so that more people could have access to the knowledge that if you live in a holistic way if you look after your brain and your body it has a very cumulative impact on the performance of your brain whether that's you know not having a relapse or whether it's performing really well at your job they're all on a spectrum. Mm. So, but neuroplasticity underlies all of that, which is that you can grow and change well th- into adulthood and throughout. And, you know, even if you do certain things by your late 30s to early 40s, you can even slow down the cognitive decline that starts around the age of 70. Wow. Do you think that psychiatry, well, let's say within the UK um, or within the world, needs to have a greater understanding of neuroplasti- neuroplasticity? for when they're kind of treating patients? Yeah, I mean, I really want to say that there was a lot of good work going on even like 15, 20 years ago. So, for example, I did a forensic psychiatry job, which was... Wow. Yeah. Um, it was a medium-secure locked ward, but there were murderers and rapists on the ward and in the clinic. And the work that the psychologists were doing on teaching empathy and remorse to rapists um, was, I think, ahead of its time. I look back now and think, OK, they were actually using neuroplasticity then, but maybe not using that word. Mm. Um, so, you know, it totally turns over this phrase that I still hear, which is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah. Or in relationships, oh, they won't change. Totally. So let them go, they won't change. Totally. But you believe you can change. I, you know, I tell everybody that, that you can change. Um, so will you tell me a little bit more about how you have changed as an adult, how your brain has developed and how you kind of uh, became aware of that potential? Yeah, so I am not one of these people that says, you know, I want to live till I'm really old and I wish I was young again. But neuroplasticity is the one thing that I think I wish I'd known about this when I was 18. Um, So, you know, I went to medical school and I was a doctor in the NHS and that's a very fixed path. And when you do a vocational degree, you do tend to think that you can't do anything else. Mm. So for a long time, I thought I was going to be a doctor for the rest of my life. Um, At one point in my mid-30s, I literally woke up one day and thought, I went to medical school because everyone said, you're so clever, you should go to medical school. I did a PhD because everyone said, you're so clever, you could do a PhD as well. And I just thought, if I'm so clever, I should be able to do whatever I want. Mm. And I have never thought about what I actually want to do. Mm. Um, So that was 
You know, age 34, 35 was, to me, the beginning of my life because of neuroplasticity. And what was that trigger? What caused, what do you think led to that wake up in the middle of the night thought? Um, it always sounds like you just woke up in the yeah, middle of the night. Was it, did it not kind of happen um, like that? Most probably not. With neuroplasticity, actually, a lot of psychological work goes on in the background. So for the last two years of being a doctor, I had become a bit disillusioned. I had travelled the world. I had done all different specialties of psychiatry, like forensic, children, adults, old age, drug abuse. And I just felt like there wasn't going to be enough intellectual challenge and new and different things in a 30 or 40 year career Mm -hmm. and I started to think you know there must be something more um I thought about it for two two years on and off um and then I ended up in a conversation with a friend who I'd been at school with who had worked for a big consulting firm for seven years and she said you know there's an overlap between what you do and what I do and she introduced me to to executive coaching Mm -hmm. And and what does that mean so it's well so what appealed to me about it was that it was both quite zen so it had some sort of elements of mindfulness to it but it was also very much about um focus and drive and setting goals so basically executive coaching is helping people who are in quite senior leadership positions to really identify what their goals are to understand how to reach those goals to stay motivated what to do when there are setbacks um and to really get to understand themselves better mm-hmm. so it was quite transferable from the sort of psychological medicine that I'd been doing. Um, and I think because of that backstory of kind of thinking that, you know, there must be more to the world of work than yeah. this for me. When I found this thing, I thought, OK, that you know, this is something I could really do. So I started to look into it quite seriously. And how did that connect with the timeline of you understanding more about neuroplasticity? I'm just thinking about your own change as an adult. Um, I think, actually, now that you're asking me, it's interesting. I, I must have made the change before I really knew about neuroplasticity. Right. But And then as a scientist, you needed the evidence to back up. Yeah. You were doing the right thing. I mean, when I look back, I think there are lots of things that I did intuitively that are actually based on the newest findings of neuroscience now. So I do think that all my training really helped me. But I think, you know, there's something else that you can't explain that I just felt like I you know should do something different yeah and I'm assuming you know if you're talking to potential clients and telling them to listen to their brain or listen to themselves and you're not doing that then there's a a disconnect so you have to I'm assuming work on yourself at the same time oh yeah now it's you know I always say I would never ask anyone to do something that I'm not prepared to do myself and I do you know all the neuroplasticity experiments on myself and and what does that entail um Well, it can be anything from like learning a new language, learning a musical instrument, pushing myself out of my comfort zone, like in a sort of physical way, like skiing or. um, Oh, I can't think of those. There was another physical challenge. I remember for me, physical challenges are really good analogies because I use my brain power all the time. That's what I do. And that's what I ask other people to do. And it's only when I was sitting on the side of a black run in Switzerland literally sitting down and thinking, if I stand up, I'm going to hurtle to my death, Mm. but I can't keep sitting here forever, that Mm. I thought, this is what I ask my coaching clients to do mentally. Yeah. I ask them to make really big decisions about work, life, um, and then if they don't do it, I'm very kind of demanding about why it went wrong, what held them back. Um, so, So for me, pushing myself out of my comfort zone physically really helps me to understand what I demand of people mentally. And do you have a coach for you? 
I've had coaching, I've had psychotherapy, I've had supervision, I've had mentoring. I'm I'm into all that stuff, yeah. So then I'm I'm thinking about the people who perhaps can't afford to see a coach or um yeah, kind of have a kind of set focus for them to work on the growth within their brain. Mm-hmm. What can they do? They can read my book. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't um, an intentional plug, but yeah, great. But I mean they that's, that's really why I wrote it because obviously not everyone can have access to things like coaching and and psychotherapy. Um mm. and so as you know, the last four chapters of the book are purely practical and they're all the exercises from short to longer term that I've done myself and built up over time that I believe leads to that actual change in your brain that you need to make that leap or just, you know, have more mm. insight about yourself. And maybe we'll get onto this more when we get into your second and third rule. But I assume, or I'll ask you, is there a, is there a do you believe that in order to grow you need to really have an understanding of who you think you are to start with. 100%. Because by now, whatever age you are, mm. you have developed... I'm 12. I'm 29. <laughs> by 29, you have developed certain neural pathways that are much thicker than other ones because they're things that you like doing or you've done repetitively or have a strong emotion associated with them. And so if you can't start with a snapshot of where you are now, then you know it's like starting but not knowing where you're starting from. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, that's really important. So, some looking back, not too much, this isn't therapy, but just getting a snapshot of where you are now to understand I've relied on these neural pathways really heavily and that's got me to where I am now, but it's going to take something different to push me forward. So some people will say, well, I don't want to, I don't need to grow. I'm happy with how I am. And they're living a kind of average existence. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we should grow? What, what's the kind of benefits I think if you're truly happy with where you are, then for some people there is no impetus to change. But the question I ask in the book is, is your life panning out exactly how you always dreamed it would? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to that is no, which for most people the answer is no, then there are some things that you can do to give you greater agency over bringing into your life the things that you've always really wanted. That sounds like there's a total sense of control the one thing that I have battled with throughout my life is letting go of control. So it sounds like you're saying you can have total control. Do you think that's true? What I'm saying, so that's a very interesting um, sort of fine line that you've brought up. When people struggle with control, it's because you're trying to control the things around you and you, you can't do that. I'm talking about mastery over your own brain. Uh-huh. So your ability to adapt to the things around you, choose the things around you, uh, use the things around you to to better yourself. It's not about um, controlling the things or the people in your life. It's about controlling yourself. I mean, there's even a quote, I think it's a famous military quote, which is, um, I can't trust a man to control others who Mm. can't control himself. Mm. But okay, I hear that. And then I'm like, well, where does fit as a doctor, where does physical illness fit in within that? Because if you're kind of trying to control your brain, does that mean maybe this is me being someone that has quite a lot of health anxiety? How, how, where do you sit on the kind of control line of your physical body? Illness, disease? Yeah, so it's a couple of things. One is that I don't distinguish between the brain and the body. So I think I see them as one connected whole. Mm -hmm. And Actually, there's a growing field, which is very, very interesting. Um, you could call it psychoneuroendocrinology, but you could, I could add a lot of words to that. But basically, it's the connection between your mental state, the physical condition of your brain, 
the um, nerves and hormones in your body that are regulated by your brain and your immune system. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually why I say that try to do all the healthy things that I've written about in the book that we all know, you know, sleep, eat, exercise, but don't stress about it because it's the stress that will kill you in the end. Mm. So actually coming back to emotional mastery, which is managing that anxiety. Um, for example, I get a lot of um, psychosomatic pain, mm. but I've understood that it's psychosomatic. So and how I, have you got to that understanding? Um, through being worried about my health, going to see doctors and either finding out that there's nothing wrong or it's something very benign. Yeah. And then understanding that when I'm anxious about something, that I get pain in that part of my body. Psychosomatic pain is still a real thing. It's your brain telling you that you're worried about part of your body. It shouldn't be ignored, but you also can't let it make you think that you have some catastrophic illness. Mm. How interesting that you've had psychosomatic pain as someone that, I don't know, it, it for me that takes a leap of faith. You have to say, well, actually, there is nothing physically wrong um, or it can't be seen in a scanner. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I'm going to accept that I have the power or the source to try and heal within. Is that essentially the journey that you've... I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the, the the exact example so that you can understand it really clearly because you've said it in a beautiful sort of conceptual way. But when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I discovered a breast lump. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was biopsied, it was benign. But a friend who was a doctor said to me that, you know, there is an X percentage chance that a, a benign lump like that can turn into cancer. And so I experienced extreme breast pain. Like I couldn't tolerate bed sheets or clothes on me. Mm -hmm. um, for years and then I went for a follow-up biopsy a few years later I moved back to England and what they told me was what you have cannot turn into cancer the reason that sometimes people with a fibroadenoma end up with breast cancer is because it was misdiagnosed in the first place yeah. and so once I knew that I definitely have a fibroadenoma I've had it biopsied two or three times by now and that cannot turn into cancer. I could get breast cancer like anybody else yeah. could, but that lump cannot turn into breast cancer. My breast pain disappeared immediately. That's when I really understood the power of the brain over the body. Yeah. And that's when I became fascinated by it. Mm. Wow, we need to move on. But I want to bring up all these things again. Uh, Tara, will you throw us in, please, to the second rule that you've broken? <laughs> identify and play to your strengths so, so you have broken that rule I have both d done it as a rule and broken it yeah okay. so the neuro the the neuroscience of you know how we build up these pathways like I said to you you will have certain pathways that have been built up really strongly does say to some extent play to your strengths it also says that because of the physiological mechanisms of neuroplasticity, it's much harder to build up development areas because they're thinner, scantier pathways. So they're going to take more intense effort to build up. What I'm really talking about here is brain agility. And I'm saying don't get pigeonholed. So like me, I was good at maths and science. But actually, looking back, I was good at languages. I was good at geography and history. I, I could have chosen a completely different path. Um, so I played to the strengths that were identified by my parents and my teachers. And unfortunately, that made me think that I didn't have strengths in other areas. So a classic example, I come from that generation where 
if you weren't good at art at school, you were told that you weren't creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was told this absolutely by the time I was about 15, if not, you know, 11 to 15. And until I was in my mid-30s and I thought... There are many other things that I can do. I've created a home. I've created relationships. I've created the work-life balance that I have. Um, I fully believed for at least 20 years that I wasn't creative. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to say with the don't identify too much with your strengths is that doesn't mean that you can't do other things. So you obviously have natural strengths and you have strengths that you've built up through repetitive practice. Um, But it's to get the most out of your brain you actually want to make sure that you're sufficiently using all the pathways in your brain. And how can you do that? So most people who have set a life up for themselves, if they're privileged enough to do that, to focus on their strengths, how how do you then spend time exploring your, inverted commas, weaknesses? So it is very much, um, coming back to what you said earlier about, you know, some people may say, well, I'm happy doing what I'm doing, mm. I'm happy the way that I am. And, and if that's true, then that's fine. Um, but... You know, I strongly believe that everyone can be, everyone has more potential than they believe they do. So everyone can be better than they are right now. Um, So basically, I talk about six ways of thinking that correlate to pathways and systems in the brain. And they are mastering your emotions, um, knowing yourself, which is that brain-body connection that Mm. we've already started talking about, Um, trusting your gut, which is intuition, Mm. Making good decisions, which is logic, because you're essentially the sum of all the decisions you've made in your life. Staying motivated and resilient to reach your goals. And then it's sort of a combination of those five, but then using the creativity pathway to manifest in the real world the life that you truly desire. So that's six ways of thinking and being. Yeah. And we will all have natural preferences within those six. So, you know, you could argue that I'm very logical and quite intuitive that, you know, if I need to be emotionally intelligent in a crisis situation, I can. But for a long time, I believed I wasn't creative. Okay? Mm-hmm. I could say that you're obviously very creative. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that even though you've said you have health anxiety, that tells me that you have a strong connection to your body. Mm-hmm. But there may be that you don't think you're that logical or maybe you find it difficult to stay motivated on you know certain tasks or whatever. So that gives us just a little, and that's just on the assumption, mm. a snapshot of like where our... Um, thickest pathways are where maybe we have some medium strength pathways that we can use but we could be better at and maybe where there are some areas that we don't really use that way of thinking or being and all I'm saying is it's not about being good at everything but it's about being as well-rounded as possible that you have access to those different ways of thinking because what tends to happen is some one-off line in childhood like you're not good at art, so that means you're not creative, Yeah, means you block off that pathway for the rest of your life. And a lot of kids who were overweight or had bad skin block off from their physicality. Yeah, um, And that can also be connected to things like intuition because intuition comes physically from your gut. Um, and people who were ridiculed for, you know, let's say a child said, I want to be an artist or I want to be an actor and people laughed at them they're likely to block themselves off from their intuition because mm. those things that they felt... Well, that humiliation yeah. is going to create a buffer. Totally. So so that's why some of these pathways, often that's the reason that they've been underused because there's some childhood trauma associated with using that pathway. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really passionate about people looking back, trying to understand if there's a reason that they don't use some of those pathways. And, and basically, 
not being too fixed on what your strengths are. Maybe you have other strengths that you haven't explored. Um, and what neuroplasticity and brain agility tell us is that you absolutely can grow and develop in all of those areas. So what within you had told you that you weren't creative? Um, well, you know, there's lots of evidence for children and teenagers that you only need one really positive, supportive adult in your childhood. It doesn't ha- even have to be one of your parents. It can be a teacher. It can be a, you know, a social club sort of leader. Um, but I, you know, I was told this at a young age, and so I believed it. I was told it by somebody that I looked up to and respected. You were told what? That I wasn't creative. Right. Um, and then throughout my 20s and my 30s, I sort of thought, it's really strange that all my friends are creative and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, actually, my best friend gave up a, an IT career to become a sculptor, and I remember thinking, that's amazing, but I could never do that. Mm-hmm. And then it was only a few years later that that I changed career. Um and when I had this conversation with another friend, he said, well, we all think you are creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such a strong narrative because if I put that together with just how difficult and challenging and traumatic writing up my PhD was, I had a very, very strong narrative in my head that I'm not a writer. Right. And the first two books I co-wrote, um, and I co-wrote because I would never let the friend down. Mm-hmm. But it was just so difficult. I mean, I, you know, I had physical pain. I was like so stressed. And um, and I every time I said I would never write a book again. But the source was one, you know, it was just like a calling. I had to write it. Mm. So, And I had a little nagging doubt at the back of my mind that I couldn't write a book by myself. So I wanted to prove to myself that that wasn't true. And then it came out. Um, it was a UK bestseller from the week that it came out. It's now being translated into 36 different languages, which is huge. Um, And I was doing my makeup in front of the mirror just a a couple of months ago, having that little conversation with yourself that you do. And I was like, yeah, well, yeah, that's because I'm not a writer. And then I I actually laid down my makeup (laughs) tools. I looked in the mirror and I said, you are a best-selling author with all these translations, um, you know, three books, and I was like, you are a writer. Mm. <laughs> so these pathways, they get so entrenched and you totally believe them. And that directs everything that you do in life. And and I want people to undo their dependence, reliance or, you know, love for their what they think are their strengths and really challenge themselves as to whether there are other things that could be strengths. And. What would you advise as the best way to start to harness all of those different kind of parts of your brain that are perhaps deemed, not your brain, but a brain, people's brains, um, that are kind of deemed as weaknesses in a world where, unfortunately, we are we are meant to be sheep, really. And if we disrupt the system, it's very difficult. Well, it's very difficult to do that. So what would you say or advise to help people kind of unleash, um, yeah, unleash themselves, really? Mm-hmm. So... With the work that I do with executives, there's two main areas that I've identified that people really struggle with. And one is building mental resilience to stress. And the world is getting more and more stressful. Um, 75% of people in the Western world are deficient in magnesium, which happens when you're stressed. Um, So what I say to people is that either if you are finding yourself feeling stressed or if people are reporting to you that you're snappy or irritable or, you know, you're getting loads of colds and flus and your health suffering, which is, you know, also the connection between physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being, um, that's usually how you know that you need to do something. The other main area, the main area that I work on is building emotional intelligence. 
So what I hear a lot is he's really great at his job, but if he carries on behaving the way that he has, we're going to have to let him go. So that's quite solid feedback from somebody that the emotional intelligence piece is what's holding that person back from, from full success. Um, you know, other ways of identifying if that's a problem is if there are lots of broken relationships, whether they're friendships or, you know, romantic relationships, possibly, you know, I think people always should see, like, am I the common denominator mm. here? So is there something in terms of, like, relating emotionally that I might need to work on? And I guess that connects with rather than accepting, oh, that is the way I am. You know, I am someone that cannot commit to actually say, well, I can change that. Yeah, totally connects yeah. to that. And and I always say that just that, lev- that level of insight, what I call raising from non-conscious to conscious, mm. that there's an issue, that's 50% of the battle. Yeah. The rest, which is identifying opportunities to try a new behaviour, repeatedly practising the desired behaviour and mm. somehow being held accountable to making that change... That, it's hard work, but I always um, say that's exactly the same as learning a new language. So let's say, what languages do you speak? French, very GCSE. Okay. (laughs) So think about the difference between if you now wanted to brush up your French, how much effort that would take. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you chose a a totally new language, you know, let's say Spanish, which is connected and it's, you know, wouldn't be that difficult. So just think about the amount of time and the effort it would take you to brush up French or learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. And basically, it would take exactly the same time for you to build your mental resilience or learn to be more emotionally intelligent. Mm. Same amount of effort as well as time. Can you throw us into your third and final rule? Because I think it actually connects with what you're saying. Um, Yeah, kick us off. Yeah, so this rule is that new age thinking, and by that I'm encompassing things like certain forms of spirituality, laws of attraction, manifestation, vision boards, that basically they're they're nonsense because they're not based on science. So Um, you have broken that rule, and very much so within your book. Definitely broke it in the book, but I grew up kind of having two lives, and I managed that very well, and I became very good at keeping those two things separate. So I grew up in North London... Um, and my parents are first-generation Indian immigrant parents, so I grew up in a household where we were vegetarian, we had Ayurvedic food, yoga and meditation were normal, um, incense sticks and reincarnation were, you know, just how it was. Mm. And then I went to school, um, and, and actually, I, you know, I grew up in quite a diverse area, so I went to a school that had um, a regular assembly and a Jewish assembly, but there were no or hardly any other Indian people at the school or where I lived. Um, so I learned to keep those sort of Eastern and spiritual practices totally separate from going to school with people who didn't do any of those things and then going to medical school and mm. learning about Western medicine um, and, you know, becoming a very hardcore scientist. Neuroscience is, you know, pretty empirical. So, however, I secretly <laughs> believed in things like the laws of attraction and um visualization and vision boards and things and so you know I practiced them in my personal life but I kept them out of my professional so you were a secret black sheep I was a secret black sheep. yeah and just for those that um 
are kind of absolutely clueless about what vision boards are and manifestations and all of that. Can you just give us a kind of quick 101 into what that, that all means? Yeah. So, well, now that I've put this all together in the book, so, you know, that's the rule that I broke. I basically said science can back up these things. So just in real summary, the way that I describe the laws of attraction through science are that the way that you think determines your life. If that's true, then cognitive science should be able to explain that. And one of the strongest gearings of the brain is what's called loss aversion. So the way that we've survived and thrived as a species is by avoiding danger and avoiding threats to our physical safety. And the psychological drive to avoid something bad is twice as powerful as the drive to get a reward. Mm -hmm. However, in the modern day, we're not really looking out for saber-toothed tigers. Um, We're not likely to starve to death, most of us. We're very lucky. Um, So what we need to do is turn that round and practice abundant thinking and look for what could I do to make myself better? What could I do to make my life better? What could I do that, you know, would be a new and exciting and different experience rather than the loss aversion, which would keep us in our comfort zone? So... That's kind of the scientific explanation of laws of attraction. Manifestation is part of the laws of attraction, which relates to the sixth pathway in brain agility, which is that using your brain power, you can create the real world outcomes that you desire. You have a lot more agency over that than we used to think. Mm -hmm. Um, Vision boards have received a lot of criticism um, as pseudoscience, especially because the books that have come out about visualization and vision boards before have said that, you know, if you if you think of and wish for and, you know, really desire good things, then they'll come to you. But if bad things happen to you, that's your fault. Mm-hmm. So I've I've sort of turned that a little bit more scientific and called them action boards and said that there are scientific reasons called selective attention, selective filtering and value tagging that if you create imagery to bring to the front of your mind the things that you really want, then you're more likely to notice and grasp opportunities in the real world to make those things come true. Um, But you can't just create the imagery like a fantasy life and wish that it comes true. You have to do things on a regular basis to move yourself towards achieving those goals. Um, Now, I'm going to take a guess from your age that Mm. you played Tetris on a Game Boy when you were little. (laughs) Um, And do you remember that if you played it last thing at night, that when you closed your eyes to go to sleep, you could see the little bricks falling down, yeah. Yeah. So that's now a recognised psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect. Mm -hmm. And so if you create a vision board or you do a visualisation in your mind last thing at night, around that period of going from being awake to falling asleep, that has a very strong priming effect on your subconscious. Um, And it means that you're more likely to be directed to things relevant to those images Mm -hmm. the next day when you wake up. And how did you start to become aware of all of this? So obviously you said growing up, you grew up in a Hindu family, so there was some Eastern practices. Mm -hmm. But I'd say there's still quite a leap from that Mm -hmm. to vision boards, manifestations, etc. So how did you find it? Yeah, so I think because of the two ways of thinking that I grew up Mm. with, I was open to that sort of thing. So I was about, again, 30... 31 when a friend introduced me to a book called the master key system and it had originally come out as a weekly newspaper column so it was sort of um each chapter had a short description then a meditation type thing that you had or visualization that you had to do and you know I was interested in Jungian psychology I was interested in Buddhist philosophy and I was interested in this book so I read it 
But at the time, I was happily married. I was living in Australia. I was traveling. I was being a doctor. I, I thought, oh, I'll come back to the exercises if I ever need them. But mm. I didn't really think that I would need them anytime soon. And then um, fast forward four or five years, I got divorced. I gave up my career. I moved countries. And I suddenly remembered this book. And I thought, you know, I need to do those exercises. Mm. So I managed to get the book on Amazon Marketplace because it's out of print. Um, and... I religiously did the exercises every week for about six months. And that's when I really understood that the way that you think determines everything that mm -hmm. happens in your life. Um, so what were the changes that happened over that time? So, well, I basically, you know, I learned to to meditate properly, to still my body, still my mind, think positively, understand how every, everything was connected. Um, and I started becoming much bolder about the business that I was building um, much more decisive about what I would tolerate or not in my personal relationships. Um, much more careful about things like exercising and eating properly um, and having proper downtime to, you know, rejuvenate my mind. Um, and basically started making the vision boards. Mm -hmm. And and when you say that, I know it's within the book, but what what? how would you build your vision board? Um, it was very um, hands-on at first. I actually now do it digitally, but for, for, you know, seven, eight, nine years, I did it by getting a piece of cardboard, scissors, glue, magazines. It's like a collage. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a collage that you make. Huh. Um, it's partly based on things that you know that you want in your life, but also if you get drawn to images for some reason, even if you can't explain it or if it sort of metaphorically represents something that you want, then you would place those on your board. Um, you choose things like, do you want the board to be full or do you want space in your life? Are certain things touching each other and connected or are they in separate mm. categories? Um, and, you know, I always would lay it out without gluing it down, at least sleep on it one night. Um, if something looks wrong on the board, remove it, even if you think, oh, I definitely wanted to travel to, you know, Rio. Mm. But if it looks wrong on the board, you have to remove it. Another flip through the magazines till it feels right. And it's quite helpful to have someone to say, like, is, is everything that you want on there? You know, or have you really sort of um, put the thing that you want as much as you should? You know, and things like you put things big or central, depending on how important they are. Glue it down. Keep it in a place that's visible. Um, when I first started, as, as I said, I was building up a business. So I would put specific amounts of money that I wanted to make in a year. Mm, I was going to ask, how specific should you be? So I've been on the journey with it because I've been doing it for about 12 years now, which is that you sort of, when you first start, you keep it a little bit general because you don't really know how it's going to work. Mm. Once you see the magic of it, you tend to get much more specific. Um, and, you know, it got to the point where I was sort of like, <laughs> be careful what you ask for because it, you know, really comes to you exactly as you've asked for it. Now I would say I like to leave a bit of room for magic because... You know, I don't I don't believe that I know everything and I can control everything. So I quite like the thought of leaving some room for something to come into my life that I haven't even thought of. Mm -hmm. um, but I do have very, very specific things on there. So to be honest, anything that's on the board is very specific. And then... And will it be to do with all spheres of life? Mm -hmm. So work, relationships. family, relationships, fertility, mm -hmm. travel. Um, and, you know... I have loads of friends who I said, you have to do this. And they've got engaged, married, had babies, started up their own business. But they were people I knew. So I sort of thought, well, I've done it and it worked. So that makes sense to me. But since the book's come out, 
I, I have had hundreds, if not thousands, of messages on Instagram from people I don't know mm. showing me pictures of places that they've been to <laughs> and that image was on their vision board. Engagement rings, wedding dresses. Um, Why do you think people are cynical? Two things. I think one is that prior to there being enough scientific evidence of how these things work, people... I mean, a lot of people have said to me, the science in your book compelled me to actually take action where I wouldn't have taken action before. So it seems a bit woo-woo and voodoo, and I think people avoid that, partly because they think it won't work, so it's a waste of time, and partly because I think, you know, we do live in this weird um, state of fear where mm -hmm. we don't want to ask for too much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's because of loss aversion and we think if we want too much, then we could, we've got more to lose kind of thing. So I do think there is an element of fear that holds people back from it. But And that's why science gives much more certainty. And I know that a lot of people that wouldn't have done it before would do it because I've laid out the science of how these things work. Mm. The only thing that, I mean, I'm all for it. And I've actually planned my vision board making on uh, the 1st of January. However, I'm a bit like, this feels so privileged like there are people that aren't going to be able to you know homeless people on the street they're not going to be able to go and make their vision board so what do you say to that like if it really is a way of kind of creating an abundant life it's incredibly uh, like specific to a particular part of an economic kind of spectrum there is an element of that which I I fully appreciate which is that you know, I think people who are going to make vision boards who have a roof over their head yeah. and have food to eat. Um, however, I do really believe that everyone can make their life a little bit better. Mm. And if you are that single parent who's struggling to put food on the table, maybe you don't have the time to go away and get the magazines and make the vision mm. board, but you can set an intention mm -hmm. that life won't be as much of a struggle next year. Mm. Um, you can set specific intentions around the well-being of your children. Mm. Um, you can take a little bit more care of your health and well-being than you feel that you can because you're pulled in so many directions. So there are tiny, tiny things that people can do that build up the health and well-being of their brain that might be able to get them to the point where they can do a vision board. Mm -hmm. Great. That does explain it. And, it, you know, unfortunately, things to do with our well-being still are stuck within a capitalist system. So it just means some people aren't going to be able to get all of the benefits that other people will. It's just... But not everybody wants the same thing. So if, you know, even if what's on your vision is just that I don't have to worry about money... Mm. Um, I don't have to worry about the health of my children. That's that's great. Um, it's, a, it's to me, it's not about it's not materialistic at all. It's about your life being better and you being having met the, your full potential. Mm. Will you take us to the one rule that you will never break, please? The one rule that I will never break is about listening to my intuition. Um, and I do think that that inner voice has always been there for me, but I've definitely worked on honing it. And I would say that journaling is the best way to hone your intuition. So I have started that since reading your book. Will you explain what that means? Again, it's quite, um, it's quite basic, which is, you know, 
get a nice paper diary and handwrite it. But a lot more people these days will just, you know, type up notes. For me, um, reading back through my journal was was like a revelation. Mm. Um, it's your own handwriting. You remember the, you know, what you were thinking at the time. But what happens is we have these insights and then we're, you know, the day job pulls us away and we sort of forget that three, six months ago we thought, oh, I mustn't do that again Mm. or, you know, I need to say something the next time I see that person. But if you look back and you see yourself basically repeatedly doing and saying the same things or saying that you won't but then doing them or not listening to that nagging doubt, not going for that, you know, extra thing that you believe in, then you have to actually face a physical fact, which is that it's written down there by you and requires some change. Mm. Um, so I also think that specifically when you have a conflict between what logic tells you or, or what other people tell you and your inner voice, it's very interesting to, to chart the progress of that decision. Mm. And the more that you, well, I found um, that I listened to that inner voice and the earlier I did that, I just saved myself so much grief, you know, because you look back and you think the classic example is is a bad relationship that you shouldn't stay in. Mm. And I've heard just too many people say I started to get that, you know, sick feeling in my stomach. I knew that I should leave, but I just didn't want to because I hated the idea of being single again or, you know, being back in the dating game. And um, the thing is that it, it pans out, causing, you know, so much extra stress and then ends anyway that actually if you learn that that's a pattern for you, it's better to just move forward as quickly as you can listening to your intuition. And what about if you have, I guess this is a bit of a selfish question, like a bit of a buzzy brain? So like endless thoughts, how do you work out what is your intuition versus what is perhaps like intrusive thoughts? Mm -hmm. So actually the best thing to do in that scenario is to take a good quality probiotic for one month So we now know that the actual physical condition of your gut Mm. and the bacteria, the quality and diversity of the bacteria in your gut, um, they contribute to your access to your intuition. So if you've got, you know, if you're bloated, if you have got intolerances that you're not listening to and your gut is leaky and stressed, then you're going to have cloudy access to your intuition. If you get your body into the best physical shape that it can be in, then it's easier to do the journaling and follow the thought process. Mm. So that whole brain-body thing is fascinating. Um, Again, it's a growing field, the three-way connection between the intuitive part of the brain, the gut neurons and the gut bacteria. Um, So I would say with a buzzy brain like that, that it's better to start by paying attention to the physical than trying to, you know, like it's like trying to walk through treacle, isn't it? And find like, um, so I think make sure that your gut's in good condition first, but then do the journaling. You said you've just started it, Mm. so that will also help you. Um, Also, some form of meditation will help to, like, reduce that buzz. So there's a lot of things that you can do. And what would you say the difference is between writing a journal and writing a diary? Um, Nothing, really. Oh, okay, fine. It's just a different word. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And as you, I'm assuming it was in your early 30s, what kind of woke you up to really listen to your intuition? Um, because you say it's the rule you've never broken, but would you say you did break it earlier in your life? Not really. I say I got there in the end, but I probably used to like delay actually acting on listening to that inner voice. Mm. But now, if I look back, it's just clearer and clearer to me that it was always, it's always right. And why do you think we do ignore it? 
I think it's a lot to do with societal expectations. So there are certain things we're supposed to do, like get married, have children, be in a good career. And we prioritise those things over our gut feeling. Mm. And how... Sorry, I'm asking you endless questions because I'm... So, give me the answers to everything in life. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's no joke because in the US, the, yeah. the strap title of the book is The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. And on another podcast, somebody did say to me, like, do you not think people are going to think you're a massive egomaniac for saying that you're going to write about the secrets of the universe? <laughs> no, you're just full of information. You've, you've obviously harnessed your full brain. Um, yes, I, I was going to um, ask... Are there kind of different turning points for you where you feel like you have been able to access your intuition on a deeper and deeper level? And is that still continuing like its journey? Absolutely. So, you know, when you say that I've harnessed my full brain, I've definitely come a long way. But it's one of those things where the more you know, the more you realise there's so much more to be done. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I definitely have like some conflicts around my intuition still at some at some times. Like what? Um Mostly about what to do, you know, in work. So, you know, I run my own business. It's pretty portfolio, which is nice. But there's always that thing about, well, this is the thing that, you know, pays the bills. And then this is the thing that I'd like to be doing more of. And mm. then this, you know, I'd like to travel less and stuff. Mm. And I I don't always act on that as quickly as I should. So sometimes I, you know, I grind through the travel and then I get really exhausted. And then I think, OK, I'm not doing that again. Um, but then I don't always actually keep to that commitment. Um so, you know, once a year I take a month off and I do a digital detox and that's when I really, really think and make my decisions. So I tend to defer it to that month, yeah. which isn't always the right thing to do. It probably would have been better for me to have decided six months ago. But then, you know, I have a strong mantra, which is the best time to plant an oak tree was 200 years ago. The second best time is now. Mm. Yeah, that's I love that. Um, sorry, I'm pausing here just because I... I want to ask you everything before you leave. Um, in terms of doubt alongside decisions, at what point does that kind of mean? I guess I'm asking you, within your intuition, is there ever doubt? Absolutely, 100% there is. And so one of the things I've learned around that is that when, so it's important to make a decision. Staying in limbo is the worst possible situation for mm. your brain. That's when you lose more and more um, ability to trust your intuition it starts to affect your health you can't mm. manage your emotions <clears throat> so there is always going to be that level of doubt we are human we're not trying to become you know the perfect absolutely in control yeah. no doubts person but I what I've learned is that when you make a decision you make it work and if it turned out to be the wrong decision which it hardly ever does because once you put your mind to making something work usually it works quite well then you always have the option of doing something different. Mm. Um, you know, one talking of rules, another rule that's just a more generic one that covers everything is not to have regrets. Everything that you've done, everything that's made you who you are has brought you mm. to where you are today. And just understand more about the choices you have moving forward than bothering to waste brain energy on regretting anything mm. that you've done in the past. Well, it's connected to the things you write about gratitude. Mm. Tara, thank you. I am incredibly grateful that you've sat with us today and um, 
really made me kind of want to focus in on myself and harness, well, hopefully all of our listeners' uh, potential. So thank you. You're an incredibly insightful and positive black sheep. Thank you. I love positive black sheep. I love it. No, I've really appreciated how excited you've been about everything. So that's made me feel like much more inspired about it all as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. 